Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name's Dan Barrow. I'll be joined in just a moment by Simon Foster. What you need to understand about screen watching is this. We live right now in a golden age of entertainment. There are so many big release movies hitting cinema screens, so many big branded TV shows hitting TV screens, and frankly, Simon and I, we're just one man each. Sometimes together we form like Voltron to be one giant man, but generally even so, that still gives us one set of eyes, one set of ears. We can't watch and review everything, but gosh darn it, we try, and this week will be evidence of the massive undertaking we've taken this week. Not like TV only battle. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What? That's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett, and fresh off the set of G.I. Jane the Remake, it's Simon Foster. <laughs> Yeah, slapped any good comedians lately, Dan? Hello, mate. How are you? Oh, I haven't slapped many comedians, but I wouldn't say no <sighs> comedians. It has been an extraordinary week for screen watching, and I say that from an entertainment industry point of view. It's been an extraordinary six weeks of screen watching with the invasion of the Ukraine and the, the coverage that's coming out of there. So movies and TV certainly take a backseat to the real world, but boy... For what we talk about, it has been a crazy week, not only seeing the slap as it happened on the Oscars, but also spending the last seven days embracing and ingesting all the incredible social media feedback and all the angles that people have come at it from, and also kind of staying out of it. I didn't want to sort of raise my, you know, have a loud, stupid voice in the middle of it all either, but I have been taking in what everyone else has been saying, and it's been a a crazy week. Uh, I'd like to point out here that Simon speaks for himself. Uh, I didn't care about the Academy Awards. The slap happened. And also, I don't think I cared that much about that either. Uh, Like, Mm. Will Smith's clearly a dick for having done it. Like, that's not cool. But at the same time, like, I found myself for the next three days having to publish stories about this for my newsletter. I didn't care that much when it happened. And I cared less and less as each day passed. Like, it's been a big frustration of my week. Surely, as a as a, a a TV analyst and a TV guru, you would you would see the impact of it as a live TV moment, and and how the society and the social media platforms around the world lit up with you know with versions of it and opinions on it and and all that kind of thing. So in the well, scheme of things, I mean, it's not also- that big a deal, other than it's public assault. But it's also sort of speaks to a, a pretty amazing point where we are in our in our world that, that people can react to it in the way they have. Well, you know, I was thinking about this because I saw like a number of newsletters come out towards the end of the week from various US trade publications and they were all talking about what a massive event that it is. And I just kind of feel like the rest of the world's maybe passed it by. So I think that if you're in the film and TV bubble, like if you're really into this stuff, as you and I are and as people listening to this podcast, I presume probably are as well, like, we probably care about this a lot more than your average person who, that was the thing that happened days ago. They don't really care about that anymore. Like, time's kind of moved on very quickly. And in terms of social media reacting against something, social media reacts against something every day. Like, it's not like this is necessarily any difference to, it, like, other things. Like, it just kind of felt like, yes, he's brought shame upon himself. I don't think that Will Smith's career will ever be the same again. Also, I don't think I care about Will Smith's career that much anymore. Like, he hasn't been relevant to me as a screen presence for quite some time. I was stoked to see him in King Richard. I think that he did a hell of a performance. He certainly deserved the Academy Award that he won for this. 
Okay, I don't think he deserves to be in the room when they awarded it to him. But even mm. so, a couple of days later, I don't think I really care one way or another. Like, I don't think he should be a member of the Academy. And as we speak, he's resigned. And so that's happening. And I'm kind of interested in the fallout and how a body which has, I honestly do think, has been struggling for relevance for a couple of years. In the same way, I think that the Emmy, as Emmys as an organization, the Academy of um, Television Sciences, if that's the name of the group, um, like I think they're struggling for relevance as well because if anything, I think these are two organizations that need to smash themselves together right now because right now, like neither make any sense at all to me in the world, to be completely frank. But I just look at the Academy Awards as just feeling a little bit outdated now and the world has moved on past Will Smith pretty quickly and he's still going to be a bit of a joke because, you know, people don't like to forget things like this. But at the same time, I'm not sure the investment's really there from a lot of people. Well, having said that, there is, and, and certainly there's a, a bias in the what in what we read and listen to on social media because of the, the industries that we're in and, and that we talk about. Because we're interested but in we, it, just generally. Like, it's yeah, a passion point. But but we should also say that social media came alive. An extra 600,000 people tuned into the Oscars after the slap. There was an incredible amount of interest in... Um, the ramifications of the event um, that I think has garnered sort of input and garnered opinion from outside the the the, the entertainment community. There's been people, you know, you, I, I listened to a fascinating conversation on Sydney Radio the other day from Stan Grant, who who spoke at length of the implications from a racial point of view, from a gender point of view. Um, so there's all these different ways that we can come at it. Uh, some more interesting than others, some more level-headed than others. Um, in the end, that he was still in the room, I totally agree with you. There was, at one point after I saw it, and I was totally stunned having watched it live and heard the foul language and saw the slap, and I, I thought at this moment, this year's Best Actor Oscar winner could be marched out in handcuffs. As if you did what he did in front of a pub or if you did what he did, you know, in your house, that's exactly what would happen. Like, I don't think it's necessarily that he'd ever be marched out in handcuffs, but, like, I just sort of... It reminded me of the fact that it was a work event, effectively. And I think about every time at Christmas, you get like the email that comes out from HR about two hours before everyone goes <laughs> off to whatever the corporate Christmas function is. And it's just a reminder for everyone to be on best behavior and that, yes. you know, what you're doing out in the world reflects upon the organization and that it's, this is a work event. And if you go and do something, you'll be all just like set to the standards of if you're in a workplace, yada, yada. Yeah. Like, there's no way I could slap a colleague as much as I'd like to often. Um, there's <laughs> no way that you could do that and still get away with, you know, remaining in the room. So, yeah. you know, I don't think necessarily arrested, but at least being ejected or being politely asked to leave, which from all the reports, that didn't actually really happen, despite what some people no. claimed in the past. But we're talking about this too much, Simon. I don't think... We are. Yeah. We're going on and on. It's Like you say, it's old news. I think we should talk about what's new on our televisions, what's new in the cinema. We'll certainly keep people up to date as events unfold, but let's sort of chat about more happier things. Well, I hope happier things. Yeah, look, we're going to be a bit all over the place today. And look, I've got this list here of what we're talking about this week, Simon. And there are so many interesting things and so many things that are potentially terrible. And so I thought, can we start with a thing that I think is potentially just going to be completely awful and just get it out of the way? Because we've got some really good stuff to talk about as well. Sure, let's do it. Okay. As I learned living on the streets, Mobius, Mo Problems. Michael Morbius, you've been missing for two months. When you're a stranger. Then you were found on a container ship that washed up off Long Island. Faces look ugly when you're alone. 
Is that my cue? Yeah, that's your cue. Is that yeah. <laughs> that's my cue? All right, wasting away in the grips of a degenerative blood disorder, Michael Morbius is driven to find a cure not just to relieve his own suffering but to better the life of his friend, Lucien, a.k.a. Milo. They first form a bond as bedbound boys under Dr. Emile Nichols, played by Jared Harris, and remain chums into a pained adulthood where Morbius, a skeletal Jared Leto, becomes a Nobel Prize-refusing researcher, and Milo, played with menace even when he's trying to be nice, by Matt Smith, a couch-bound invalid. It is the contention of Dr. Mobius that vampire blood may hold regenerative properties and so in a ship moored in international waters and alongside his loyal colleague Dr. Bancroft, played by the wonderful Adriana Ejano, he instigates an experiment upon himself and it works, kind of. The downside being that it transforms the Doctor into a hunky vampire whose bloodlust must be refreshed every few hours. Milo wants in on the new drug, but Morbius won't allow his friend to suffer through the horrible side effects for a few hours of pain-free life, but Milo has his own ideas. Now, I came to this expecting the worst, and as I was watching it, I realized the most interesting aspects of, of this film, directed by a guy called Daniel Espinosa, who last did the Ryan Reynolds film Life, um, it mirrors <coughs> themes raised in David Cronenberg's 1986 classic The Fly. Um, vampirism as a, as a form of body horror, the loss of one's own physicality within outcomes that harms both the afflicted and those they love gives this film a sort of a subtextual hook, I guess you could say, that adds to one's investments in the investment in the good doctor's moral journey. Um, you have to search for it at times, given there's not a lot of narrative meat on the Morbius bone, but the doctor's connection to both Bancroft and Milo, while still coming to grips with his new lethal self, brings with it, I found, a fairly compulsive sort of watchability. Um, it's a comic book trope as old as comic books themselves. There's one scene he's being questioned by Tyrese Gibson and Al Madrigal, who play the two dumbest detectives in film history, and a blood-craving Michael scowls, you wouldn't like me when I'm hungry, which is, of course, a reference to the Bruce Banner Hulk mythology from which Morbius is drawn. Jared Leto does as much with the duality of the character as asked of him, committing to make-up prosthetics and stepping aside for his CGI stand-in when, when required. Um... While the film sort of won't win over any new fans, won't upgrade the property from second-tier comic realm alongside the likes of Venom, or if you're a DC fan, things like Swamp Thing or The Shadow, there is a layered psychology to Morbius, which I may be further drawn into in future and probably better iterations of the character. It's almost a shame that this is tied to the Marvel Universe, because given... That inclusion brings with it a, a franchise expectation level that doesn't serve the character's traits particularly well. So I'm a little bit surprised to say that I kind of got into this. It's not a great film, but I think it did enough for me to to sort of certainly make it better than the last Sony Pictures Marvel picture, um, uh, the Venom films. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of giving this half a thumbs up. Yeah, look, you're the only person. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. It's at seventeen percent on Rotten Tomato, and I'm looking now. at some. I'm looking at some very serious cr critics that I admire wonderfully that just sort of rip this to shreds. And I know it's had a troubled production history and been in the vault for a couple of years, and it probably could have been cleaned up a little bit over that time. But um, yeah, I think when I was going in just to hate it so much, um. And finding that there were a few moments in there which make it a little bit smarter than I think 
I was expecting. And it's quite a good-looking film in parts. The vampire stuff, the bat sequences are, pr- are pretty cool. So, yeah, look, it's not a great film, but it's certainly watchable. Yeah, look, I had some media tickets to go and see this, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. <laughs> and you're the comic book guy. I thought this you'd be all over this. No. Do you agree that he exists in that, 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 that Morbius exists in that sort of second-tier level with the Swamp Things and the Venoms and the Shadows and that kind of character? Uh, I mean, first of all, I think you referred to the Shadow as a DC character, and that's not true, but let's, uh, oh, let's get past okay. that. That'll get, uh, that'll get emails. Look, I mean, I wouldn't call Morbius second-tier. He's more like fourth, fifth... Wow, okay. here, you know he's around he's just a obscure spider-man villain more than anything else like it's not that big a deal uh look yeah. i'm amazed they made the movie i understand sony's desire to try to work with the limited amount of ip they've got from the spider-man deal they've got at hand but boy i i don't know uh also all things jared leto i've got no interest whatsoever <laughs> I, i've had enough of him and his zany accents for 2022 yeah, yeah. I, I know one reviewer recalled to him as a Beverly Hills Jesus. He's got that kind of look, that cool sort of Hollywood look. And um, yeah, I, I, I am not a fan. I feel the same about him as I think you do. But I thought he, he worked hard enough in this to, to make it worthwhile. So, you know, I didn't want to sit on the fence. So I quite liked it. Okay, let's stick in the Marvel realm while we're at it. There's a Marvel TV show, and this is proper Marvel. This isn't fake Sony Marvel. This is a new Marvel TV series called Moon Knight. I'm losing it. Look <laughs> at you on. You're bloody useless. Stevie. Steven. Uh, I can't tell the difference between life and dreams. Shout out to people watching this on our YouTube channel who got to watch me cough violently while that was playing. I got a bit of uh, leftover logie from last week, Simon. Ugh. Let's talk about Moon Knight, shall we? And look, I don't know how much of a review this is because I kind of looked at this and I'm like, well, it's just more Marvel stuff. And it kind of got me thinking that at a certain point, we need to ask ourselves as viewers, what is it we want from Marvel TV shows and movies? There's a certain degree of formula to them all, a house style, if you will. And when I look at a Marvel TV show, I look at it the exact same way that I tend to view reading comics from the big two, which is Marvel and DC. The stories are always going to be somewhat disposable, but you're reading it to get the occasional thrill, and sometimes you might be surprised by a story approach that delights and surprises. But at the end of the day, you know you're just reading that month's... You're reading like that version, like that month's churn in the cycle of never-ending serialized stories that are ultimately meaningless because they come out at such a frequent chop that, you know, so many stories with the same characters, like how much could it really impact upon the reader? Like, it just doesn't. So a superhero story from Marvel and DC, they've got the same weight ultimately as today's episode of A Daytime Soap. So approach is important as you start watching Moon Knight. This is a character that most comic book readers would profess not to really knowing anything about. Created in 19... Simon shrugging his shoulders. Uh, created in 1975, the character can charitably be seen as a Batman knockoff. In later years, they did add a little bit to him. They gave him a collection of alter egos and they were explained away as being disassociated, disassociative personality disorder. That's right, as seen in that John Cusack movie that I can't think of the name. What is that awful film, Simon? Oh, uh, yes, not, yeah, no, I'll think of it. Keep going. Yeah. I'll, I'll bring it up. Also, spoiler alert, that's the twist for the very end of that film. But anyway, okay. uh, as most people press play on episode one of Moon Knight, they're doing it not because they're familiar with Moon Knight, they're doing it because it's the latest Marvel installment. 
So the question I think ultimately when you're thinking about this from a should I watch it standpoint or you know even just think about it like how do we analyze this, how do we break it down, you just have to look at it and think how does it fare within the Marvel experience? And I'd suggest this one probably better than most. It certainly feels a little bit smarter and individual than most Marvel products, but it certainly falls in line with the expected house style. The show has got a really great lead with Oscar Isaac joining the MCU as Stephen Grant, aka Mark Spector, aka the titular Moon Knight. He's really great fun to watch as the somewhat adult Stephen Grant in England, accent and all, as we heard in the clip. And you got the first episode with Grant jumping confusedly from scenario to scenario, and there's echoes strongly of the film Memento that play within this. In terms of a villain, Isaac's playing against Ethan Hawke as a cult leader, and this is all set against the backdrop of ancient Egypt with a show concerned about ruins and artifacts. Look at it as Memento meets Indiana Jones, and you know what you're in for. With just one episode, it's difficult to really get much of a hold on how invested one should be with the show, but in that hour, it proved itself to be hugely watchable, entertaining in parts, and certainly very much in line with brand Marvel. The show, it's fine, just go into it knowing this isn't a novel as much as it's episode 263 in the ongoing Marvel serial. Uh, I think the John Cusack film you're talking about is Identity from 2003. That's the one. Gosh. That's the one. That was something. Um the other, the thing that I've seen most on my social media feeds is about Ethan Hawke's introduction in the first episode. Apparently, it's kind of icky. Is can you shed any light on on what happens there? Um, I didn't really see anything else particularly icky. Okay, all right. Were they so about icky I, I, in terms of like you know blood and gore, or in terms of like some sort of cultural insensitivity? Oh, no, no, they're talking about him coming on as a pretty strong sort of villainous type. So it's certainly within the cartoon or comic book realm, I should say. So, oh, look, I mean, um, I didn't notice it as being particularly sort of quote-unquote icky, but it certainly is a very mature TV series. Like, okay. it's, it's, not, it's not Marvel Junior stuff. Like, it's not Guardians of the Galaxy sort of level of stuff. This is definitely a lot more in the more brutal sort of Captain America style violence. But even then, like, Marvel only gets so violent. Yeah. Um, I'm keen to see it. I'm keen to see it because of the acting quality involved, the, the Ethan Hawks and the Oscar Isaacs. And is there a female lead? I'm really sort of behind the curve on on, on the show. Uh, there were certainly women in the show, but no one would really call a lead. Okay. All right. So I'm keen to have a look at this one episode in. I'm going to pick up on it tonight and, and check it out. Um, does it, from the episodes you've seen, does it suit the small screen format? Was there ever an opportunity for this to be a, a big screen film or is this certainly of the, the, the Marvel universe that, that's better suited to the small screen? Well, look, I don't even really see things in big and small screen sort of scenarios like this anymore. Like all of the Marvel stuff, like the Marvel TV stuff, it's certainly been serialized, yes, but the production quality steps beyond what we really expect from TV productions and even the idea of what a TV production is now just feels so antiquated because so much money gets spent per hour on TV where, you know, it's hard to really look at this guy, oh, this feels so TV when, you know, they are so big and bombastic. And this, like, certainly felt just as much that it could be a movie as much as it is a TV show. It's got the same sort of budget. Like, you know, it's suddenly a budget stretched out across, I think, six hours for this one. But ultimately, like, you know, it still feels like a Marvel experience. Moon Knight is currently available on the Disney, Disney Plus. Plus channel. Disney Plus channel all around the world, wherever you're listening. Um, in our next um, worldwide tour through the IP <laughs> section of the of Hollywood, I had a look at Sonic Hedgehog 2. Now, just a warning, this isn't necessarily a clip from the movie as much as it is part of the promotional cycle of Sonic. And I thought this was kind of fun and a good lesson for you kids. Hey, everybody. Sonic here with a quick word on my new movie. He's back! I know fast. 
So you can believe me when I say the fastest way to wreck a movie is spoiling it for others. Wait for yes. it. If you get the urge to reveal everything, just da, 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 da. just slow down. And I promise I'll never ask you to go slow ever again. So at the end of Identity, you find out that all the characters are actually personalities that John Cusack has. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I wished I'd watched that again instead of Sonic Hedgehog 2. But I digress. Let me get on with this. With two years of pandemic-impacted box office revenue to catch up on, Paramount Pictures rushed into production on this sequel to their last pre-plague hit. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 reunites all the major creatives, including director Jeff Fowler, Jim Carrey as the megalomaniac, megalomaniacal Dr. Robotnik. Ben Schwartz is voice acting Sonic again. James Marsden as the human element. And all the below the line effects talent that brought Sonic to life Sonic to life the first time around there's some new characters in the mix uh, Tails the flying fox voiced by Colleen O'Shaughnessy what a great name who was glimpsed at the end of the first film and who lands in Sonic's hometown of Green Hills Montana just as things are about to turn dangerous for our spiky hero in a pre-credit sequence set on the mushroom planet the banished Dr. Robotnik aligns with a red-hued tough guy called Knuckles the Echidna voiced by Idris Elba doing the gravelly bad guy voice um, they make a deal to get Robotnik back to Earth and he promises to deliver Sonic while fiendishly scheming to purloin the all-powerful Green Emerald and see out his plans for world domination. Now, there's a lot in there that fans of the game, which debuted an incredible 31 years ago and has been a Sega cash cow ever since. I feel so old. Well, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Certainly watching this film, I did. Um, there's plenty in there that fans will recognise and appreciate. And Fowler and his writing team fill the screen with Easter eggs to keep your attention. What they don't fill the screen with is any of the charm or laughs that made the first film a happy diversion for non-gamers. Instead... Paramount have pushed their spiky teen hero into an MCU-style end-of-the-world effect extravaganza, banishing to the periphery all that was engaging about the first film in favour of some pretty rote heroics and tied CGI. It also runs an unforgivable 122 minutes, the length blown out by time wasted in sequences like a Serbian bar watching Sonic win a dance contest and a frantic and very unfunny Hawaiian wedding gone wrong set piece featuring Natasha Rod. Rothwell as a very shrill sort of African-American bridezilla caricature. Uh, notably, neither sequence features Jim Carrey, who was absent for long passages and or called upon to play straight man to Knuckles, thereby robbing the film of its strongest comedic asset. And poor Sonic, the cocky teenager occasionally called on to be the plucky hero, is dwarfed by this ill-fitting scale of his own movie, often all but disappearing amidst the mayhem. In the inevitable Sonic the Hedgehog 3, which is certainly hinted at in the final moments of number two, I suggest just give the franchise back to the simple charms of our little spiky heroes. So, yeah, this one's a disappointment. Yeah, Sonic's an interesting one. So I remember, sorry, two things. First of all, you mentioned Tails. I remember being a 12, 13-year-old kid and there was word coming out about Sonic 2 and what's going to be happening in a Sonic 2 game. And they introduced Tails and the advanced word was that the character's going to be called Two Tails. And I've always associated that as being that character's name. And so when I just hear him as Tails, it's like, that's not right. It's Two Tails. Doesn't cut it. That's not yeah. true, though. I'm just wrong. Uh, but the other thing is that... Like, as long as there's been Sonic, there's been a lot of attempts to try to build out the Sonic extended universe. So there's been comics, there's been animated series, lots of efforts to try to contextualize this as a character that doesn't exist just in a video game, but really is a big multimedia property. 
And I've never mm-hmm. really felt convinced that there's been a strong sense of the Sonic universe. And I understand there are fans of the Sonic universe and there will be people who disagree violently with what I've just said, but I just never really got a sense that he really was that breakthrough character that they've tried so hard and so many times to make him. I remember the hubbub and the, uh, the the craziness that the internet went into when that first glimpse of Sonic from the first movie turned up and everybody <laughs> hated it. So he, he went back for a redesign and then the film came out and the film turned out to be pretty good. It was a tale of, you know, family values and good versus evil and Jim Carrey, you know, rediscovering his Ace Ventura wackiness. So um, it ended up taking like over 300 million worldwide, which was a legit blockbuster and it was cut short by covid so it was it was a huge hit and it got audiences in that weren't fans or weren't familiar with the the broader um sonic universe that you refer to i don't have any sort of knowledge of that and i really enjoyed the first film um because it was a simply told tale with really good simple values and a very funny jim carrey turn and that's all it needed in this one it's just that big blustery laptop effects sort of feel um, that is just churned out so much in Hollywood now. And all that was charming about the first film is is lost in this film. So um, it's disappointing. And I agree with you. I don't think there's been any sort of serious um, fan, you know, well, swelling of support for a a vast Sonic universe. Um, this one is a little expansive in that it goes to the Mushroom Planet and the best few moments of the film are in the first three minutes in a pre-credit sequence with Jim Carrey on the planet. After that, it loses any inspiration. So, um, yeah, disappointment. I'll be talking about another film in a minute, which is a much better school holiday option. Okay, uh, let's move away from big, stupid, over-the-top special effects and just nonsense. And I'm going to talk about a heartfelt drama, which is very much in line with the conversation I've been having in this podcast over a couple of reviews now. Not today, but in you know recent weeks. We're going to talk about the new HBO Max slash Binger here in Australia uh, drama. It's called Julia. Are you hearing audio, Simon? Because I'm not. Nothing. Yeah, I guess this afternoon, oh, right? Now, books. Maybe we'll rename our little program what my wife's been reading. Welcome, Julia Child. What a lovely introduction. Hmm. Could have sworn that clip went a little bit longer. <laughs> Look, Simon, from the opening moments of Julia, it's clear what the show plans to be. It's an exploration of a woman we didn't previously push much... Cons- it's the exploration of a woman we previously didn't put much consideration into, and we're providing greater context about why we should have paid more notice to her for what's often been underappreciated trailblazing work. Now, it's all part of the current trend of shows that reconsider famous women, and there's a bunch of them, but if we're to use the mission statement of that as having us reconsider the work of TV chef Julia Child, a woman who practically invented the TV cooking show and many of the techniques that's used to convey the cooking process on screen to audiences, the show is an absolute success. Just a handful of episodes in, I'm immediately drawn into the world of Julia Child. I've certainly now appreciated her for the work that she's done, and I'm absolutely ready to celebrate all things Julia Child. But does the show need to be more than that? In the first couple of episodes, we're certainly introduced to a rich and engaging set of characters, but the dramatic stakes are actually really low. I don't really feel I've got a good sense of who any of the characters are outside of their work or relationship to Mrs. Child. And the show itself has a really strong sense of the, a really strong sense of having a bit of a Mary Sue about it all. And if you don't know the term Mary Sue, it's basically a character that can achieve and do anything, and she's kind of your hero character, and there's no flaws in her whatsoever. And here we've got Julia Child in this show as a woman who could do nothing wrong, and every step she seems to take works out for her. 
And are we telling the biography of a real-life woman here, or is it a dramatic retelling of Mary Poppins? The series seems to operate in a opposite ways to the recent raft of shows about grifters taking advantage of the changing social strata, as we've seen in shows recently like The Dropout, Super Pumped, and We Crashed. Those shows are about delighting in the obscenity that social structures allow those monsters to thrive. This show, however, is taking a figure from the more distant recent past and showing what good can come from a woman challenging the system. And while that messaging certainly meets a public benefit, there's elements of the show that leave me a little bit uncomfortable. Like the grifter class of shows, Julia's more interested in telling a story that supports modern thinking and fulfillment than it is in reporting a show with historical accuracy. At what point have you... Sorry, at what point are you doing the life of a person being considered a disservice by recontextualizing a story for it to meet modern standards? And so the most egregious example of this is the creation of Alice Naiman. She's a young African-American TV producer who helps Julia get her show on the air. She's completely fictitious. The rest of the ensemble of the core characters in the show are all based on real people who happen to be rather wise. Naiman replaces real-life TV producer Ruth Lockwood, who doesn't exist in this show, and there's no justification at all in Lockwood's erasure, which in itself is a disservice to a show that's seeking to better appreciate trailblazing women. Ruth Lockwood is absolutely a trailblazing woman not to be seen in the show. And the only reason seems to have been done to make the show more palatable for a modern viewer who might otherwise feel uncomfortable by a complete lack of diversity in the show's primary cast. Like with the recent series The Dropout, HBO Max's Julia is a thoroughly entertaining show. You'll feel great watching it, it's absorbing, the cast is all incredibly winning, and you'll have a much stronger appreciation for the work of Julia Child by the end. But what you won't have is an approximation of the real-life Julia Child and the actual struggles and successes she went through to get her shows to the air. There's too much of the show that's been confected. Now, is it a bad thing that the show takes such liberties in order to get the viewers to engage with the subject matter? Maybe not. But at a certain stage, you have to wonder, why even adapt a real person's life to the screen? Why not just invent the entirety of the story and bake it from scratch? Well, that is a fascinating point to come in on because it's a, you often are faced with watching films and watching TV shows, you're faced with the based on a true story or mm. inspired by true events type of things. And I immediately go, well, what are, which parts am I watching which are true, which are dramatized? Um, I don't inherently have a problem with it but put in the context that you put it in um about it being manipulated to reflect you know current audience expectations or or industry diversity standards or elements like that yeah it's it's a i mean it's a problem i kind of feel for the producers that are now producing period works um and it's just come to me that the show that you raved about a few weeks ago the gilded age um has been sort of put on point a little bit for being a bit dull, but has also been widely praised for being um, for portraying African-Americans in a, in a turn-of-a-century setting who have attained some level of their own um, uh, wealth and, and, and uh, social standing. So, yeah, look, this is a, it's a fascinating point of discussion. Yeah, uh, The Gilded Age, just for record, the criticism hasn't been so much that it's dull as much as that there's just no meat to it whatsoever. Mm. And, like, that's fair, but I had a last of the time with it regardless uh but that's and what about and the portrayal of african-americans yeah i was, was gonna say that, like, that show is interesting because you do have this african-american family depicted in it and it is coming from a position that you never see that depicted on screen which is that hmm. there were african-americans of the time who had wealth and privilege and usually we see period dramas where it's depicted very much through a slave conversation and i'm sort of thinking maybe a little bit about the tv show the nick 
which is a hospital drama set in 1901 in New York, that I absolutely adore that program. And that show was interesting in that it had an African-American doctor at the center of it. Now that show and The Gilded Age as well, both of them actually do consider the racial sensitivities of the time and talk about those characters as they actually would be engaging in uh, the culture. And even if it's not 100% historically accurate, it still seems to have something to say about all of that. Whereas I'm watching this character that's been created for the Julia show and that's not really saying anything. Like she's essentially just the character that could just as easily be white and could just as easily be the real woman that actually occupied the position that she's in within the show. But it just mm. seems that we've cast her purely just for some diversity, which I don't understand why you do that. Like it's just kind of, it's a little bit gross to a certain degree. Like you're kind of not treating the audience with respect. You're not treating Paul Luth, uh, Ruth Lockwood with respect because you've erased her entirely from the story. And also mm. even the fictitious character that they've created for this you're not treating her with respect because you're not actually giving her anything of value to do that is in relation to why you've confected her as a character like it's it's so awkward but beyond that it's a hugely entertaining program i think people will really get a kick out of the program i can't wait to press play on the next episode but something about this has me feeling so squicky simon Okay, so where can we check out this, uh, what'd you say, squicky show? Uh, it is squicking your way through HBO Max right now, and you can also stream it here in Australia on Binge. All right, well, for my last one, this is the show that the uh, parents should be taking their kids to at the cinemas over the coming school holiday period here in Australia. It's called The Bad Guys. It's called The Bad Guys or The Good Guys? The Bad Guys. Okay, I've got to run down it says The Good Guys, Simon. <laughs> That's the uh, shopping chain, isn't it? Isn't that the supermarket chain? <laughs> yeah. There was also a TV show called The Good Guys, which had uh, Bradley Whitford and Colin Hanks in it. Did I? Where's the running down with The Good Guys? I'm no, like, no. Anyway, I, play the clip. I, I wrote on a bit of paper and wrote down The Good Guys. It's not your fault. This is all me. <laughs> anyway, Simon, why are we still talking? We could be listening to a hilarious animated clip. We're the bad guys. It's crime time, baby. Shark. We need a distraction. Do I get to improvise? Fine. Please be subtle. I'm having a baby! Is there a doctor or perhaps several security guards that could leave their post and help me? I thought that was very funny. <laughs> it is a very funny film. Um, despite an occasionally patchy history in the field of animation, anyone remember Shark Tale? DreamWorks has captured the anarchic glee, the character chemistry, and the old school narrative skill of a skill of Aaron Blaby's best-selling books, director Pierre Perifel, brings a decidedly non-Hollywood animation style to the story of five friends leaning into the preconceptions of them all as nature's criminal element, but it is a style that allows for really dazzling flourishes of colour and action, delivering an older skewing family pick, the likes of which we haven't seen since Brad Bird's 2004 classic The Incredibles. The, film's opens, the film opens on that uh, staple of the crime genre the diner scene and you know maybe referencing the start of pulp fiction or reservoir dogs and then i'm thinking it's a kids movie um the slick career crim wolf uh, voiced by sam rockwell um and safe cracker street hood snake brilliant voice work by mark Marin. they're riffing on the highs and lows of birthdays in that very tarantino way um before they just saunter over the road to a bank and, and, and rob the joint there's a wild car chase after that during which we meet the rest of the gang computer guru tarantula aka webs voiced by aquafina uh, blubbery master of disguise disguise shark craig robinson we'll be talking about him a bit more soon and the twitchy tough guy piranha played by anthony ramos um Wolf is this sort of George Clooney-esque, <coughs> excuse me, 
package of very smug egotism. He's triggered into action when the new governor, the upwardly mobile Fox Diane, voiced by Zazie Beetz, um, insults him and his crew on local TV. Wolf sets his sights on the ultimate heist, the pilfering of a bejeweled trinket during a gala in honour of guinea pig philanthropist Professor Marmalade, hilariously voiced by Richard Ayoade, um, only to have it backfire soon. The whole honour amongst thieves creed is being challenged and the friends are faced with the intellectual might of a true criminal mastermind. Now, adults familiar with the high-stakes crime genre like the Ocean's Eleven films will draw more from the bad guys than their kids. The under-12s might have a bit of trouble registering all the double-crosses and underworld machinations in Eaton Cohen's screenplay, but that certainly won't detract from their overall enjoyment. So thrilling are the action pieces and lovingly rendered are the characters. The film becomes increasingly loomy. Wait till you see the army of mind-controlled hamsters with glowing eyes, but it loses none of its smarts. It's the perfect franchise kickstarter and the best dreams work dreamworks cartoon since forever okay high praise i will check it out maybe at some point i don't know i'm an adult <laughs> well there's plenty of it the point is that there's plenty in this for adults and i had a blast watching it um the, the animation is just dazzling to the eye but there's a lot of great character work in there wait till you hear i don't usually get excited about voice work in in the animated films um i remember absolutely falling in love with holly hunter in the incredible she was great as elastigirl and in this one mark Marin, who does the voice of snake as i mentioned he just finds an extra layer of you know character in inside this this character and and alongside wolf they have some great scenes together him and sam rockwell okay simon let's keep this uh, dog and pony show um going on there was neither the dogs or ponies in the show i don't think i'm going to talk about the new craig robinson comedy it's called killing it burmese pythons eat everything it's an ecological disaster <clears throat> so the state pays for every dead python we bring in whoever gets the most snakes wins twenty thousand dollars do you want to team up? I'm tough. Don't you hear my rugged Australian accent? Okay. Yeah, I ch- shamelessly clo- uh, chose that clip because we're Australians and so we can relate Yay. to it. Yeah. Look, Craig Robinson, he's funny as hell. Uh, my interest in seeing him star in another TV show, however, was limited. There was that lousy sitcom he did called Mr. Robinson, which had him on screen as a high school music teacher. And man, that show blew. And then there was the, I wanted to love it and then tried to convince myself I did, but never really could, supernatural comedy Ghosted that he was in alongside Adam Scott. Now, he's not your usual TV talent and nothing has ever really quite clicked with him. Sitting down to watch Killing It, I was apprehensive. There's that track record after all. But there's also the premise of the show, which to be charitable sounds more like a funny or die sketch than a show. But it's all in the execution and thankfully this is a show that actually really delivers. The premise of the show is this. Robinson stars as a man who's been perpetually kicked in the teeth through life. Working as a security guard at a bank, he struggles to get a loan to buy some land he needs to start a harvesting business. Following a chance encounter with an eccentric Australian Uber driver, played by Claudio Doherty, who's probably best known by audiences for the Netflix comedy Love, uh, he gets involved in the lucrative world of state-sponsored python hunting. That's right, Simon. (laughs) To make it in America, sometimes you need the willingness to get your hands dirty and you need a hammer. Now, obviously the show sounds ridiculous, and it is, but the show is also wonderfully funny, it's dark, and it's entirely twisted comedy. It balances its silly sounding plot, again, it is a silly sounding plot, and it is a silly sounding plot, 
but it also balances it with richly developed, downtrodden characters who feel authentic to what's largely the sort of confected TV show premise that could only ever exist in the most extreme of screen comedies and actually in real life. Now, Robinson, he's known for having a big personality on screen, but like a lot of big guy comedy actors, his strength is in leaning deep into a sensitivity on screen. Placing such a lovable guy that we're all rooting for at the center of this beyond ridiculous show makes the whole show sing. And pairing him up with Claudio Doherty is a masterstroke, with both of them deeply vulnerable, hard-on-sleeve types. As with all distinctive comedies, this one will either click for you or it won't. For those who do connect with its heartfelt yet thoroughly nutso comedic sensibilities, you're going to have a great time with killing it. It's heartfelt but nutso. Put that on the DVD jacket. <laughs> There's the poster quote. Heartfelt but nutso, says Dan Barrett of Screen Watching. Yeah, I'm a big Craig Robinson fan. In fact, I only re-watched recently This Is The End, uh, the, the movie in which he played himself opposite uh, Seth Rogen and Jay Baruchel, and he was very funny in that. He's always sort of enlivened um, support part, so it's great to see him in a lead part worthy of his talent. So Killing It is on Peacock and Stan. Yeah. Uh, well worth your time. Give it a gander, kids. Also in cinemas this week, a uh, pretty big week for movies, actually. Some unusual films. One called Carbon, the unauthorized biography. This is where they get a whole bunch of scientists together and make a really entertaining documentary about how important carbon is to us, despite it getting a really bad name in the press Um uh, it is uh, the building blocks of life and uh, sort of binds us to the rest of the galaxy. This is narrated in the first person. She actually plays Carbon as the narrator by Golden Globe winner Sarah Snook, um, Aussie actress from Succession. Also in Simon, cinemas... you know how I the... feel about science. <laughs> yeah, I know. You haven't looked at science since year eight. The Duke is also in cinemas. This is the true story of the elderly taxi driver who stole a famous painting from London's National Gallery. It stars two of British cinemas or British acting's uh, legends in Jim Broadbent and Dame Judi Dench. Haven't seen The Duke yet, but I've heard good things. And we don't, we don't, well, we don't ever mention the Bollywood films that have hit the cinemas around Australia, but they play a huge part in this nation's movie going. Um, a film called Triple R, which stands for Rise, Roar and Evolt. This is a, it's a fictitious story of two legendary revolutionaries uh, fighting for their country in, in faraway lands in the 1920s. I mentioned it because it opened to a three day total over the Holla um, uh, weekend in India to an extraordinary $65 million. Uh, so movie going is still a huge part of the culture in, in India and, and uh, holiday releases like Triple R um, get the people in, in in huge numbers. And it's playing around Australia in uh, both the dubbed version and the original language. And that's our segment done. That's it. Then we need a sting. So, Simon, during the week, uh, there was the news that Bruce Willis is retiring from acting. Yes, uh, the actor's decision to retire from acting um, after his diagnosis of aphasia, I think it's pronounced, a, a degenerative mental disorder, um, has brought about a new appreciation of the man's work. He was a movie star that whose entire career I sort of grew up with. Um, and I thought this is a good opportunity. In fact, you thought this was a good opportunity, and I think it's a great opportunity um, to recall the rise and the rise of the former New York City barman, recalling our favourite Bruce Willis moment. Now, I don't want this to be morbid because he hasn't passed away. We don't want to eulogize him just yet, but we should recall some of the great moments in his acting career. You want to kick this off? Yeah, I mean, which of the last 10, 15 films do we choose? 
<laughs> well, maybe not the last 10 or 15 films. And as we record this, I do just want to say I think the uh, those idiots at the Razzie Awards have done the right thing by rescinding his worst actor. Uh, who, um, who cares uh, about what the Razzie Awards? Like, seriously. Well, they've taken it back on because no, they did this stupid thing where they nominated all, all these stupid, films. It's stupid, though. The Razzies are just garbage. Like, the garbage. thing is, they're a body that's set up to, you know, oh, here's the worst movies of the year. They're never the worst movies of the year. They're just the worst movies that have a notable star in it that they want to be just prissy little dicks about. <laughs> Let's not get sidetracked from our love of Bruce Willis. Let's talk about what some of his his great performances were. Where did you first, I guess you first came across Bruce Willis like the rest of us on via Moonlighting? Well, no. So Moonlighting only really came across later in life because I was just a bit young okay. for that on TV and my parents weren't really into it at all. So it was never on our TV. But the two places that I obviously, like I think most people sort of really came across Bruce, obviously Die Hard. Uh, but I reckon I probably saw him first on like a VHS rental of Blind Date. Okay, yes. Yeah, not not a great movie by any means, but certainly where yeah. I first saw him. But Simon, what's your Kim what is your absolute favourite Bruce Willis movie? Because I'm sure you have one. Look, I do, and he has been one of the sort of two or three major movie stars of, of my generation. Um, it, you know, this is going to seem completely cliched, but Die Hard was the film that introduced the world to a different kind of Bruce Willis. I had been a huge... Well, it didn't really just um, introduce, like, different type of Bruce Willis. Like, he was kind of half known for moonlighting for one season. And, then, like, it really introduced the world to Bruce Willis. To, yeah, out. to a certain yeah. extent. Uh, moonlighting, moonlighting had sort of impacted me, and I'd been watching a lot of Moonlighting. By the time um, Die Hard came along, if it was a couple of years into the run of Moonlighting, if I remember, he was like he was coming off that, and people weren't sure he was going to be a a um, big screen action star because you know you were talking about the muscle men of the the early eighties, like the Schwarzeneggers and the Van Dams, who were dominating the box office. But and he'd made a couple of films that had sort of tried to play on his uh, comedic aspects Blind Date which I really enjoy Kim Bassinger's great in that yeah. and a little film called Sunset opposite James Garner which is a sweet kind of early Hollywood story but it was Die Hard that you know it exploded on the scene and, and from that point on he his choices weren't often great um, or he was great in films that were really underseen. He made a terrific film called In Country about a returning soldier in 1989. Um, but you've got to understand the might of Bruce Willis's stardom got him to make films like Hudson Hawk, which I adore, but which was a huge <laughs> flop. Um, I also love and Hudson he made Hawk. It, Can I tell you a Hudson yeah. Hawk anecdote? Yes, please. Okay, so a couple of my friends, we decided to start doing these things that we called a-thons. So it started with Candy-a-thon, where everyone came with like a large assortment of candy that they love, and then you put it out in like large bowls, and everyone just like eats candy all day. <clears throat> okay, and basically it's like sharing people like unique and obscure candy. So it started. So this is when you were like nine years old or something. No, no, very no. Young? Thoroughly an adult at this point. <laughs> but the a-thon concept grew and evolved into other types of things. We did ice cream a-thon, where we all made a type of ice cream and brought it and shared wow. it around with each other and. So there were some pretty incredible ice creams. Very unusual. Uh, yeah. But there was one day where we did Cordial-a-thon. And it was where we all explored the idea of Cordial by bringing a unique kind of Cordial to the group. But what happens is when you drink a large amount of Cordial is that you also ingest a large amount of sugar. Mm -hmm. So we all got very sort of hyper as the afternoon went on. But at a certain point, you crash when you have that much sugar. And we all sat down and started watching Hudson Hawk. But here's the thing. We were so heavily influenced by the amount of sugar we'd had and the crash we were all having. We were about 35, 40 minutes into the movie before somebody realized the volume wasn't up. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is exactly the way many critics said you should have watched the film um, without any of the dialogue or any of the ideas that, that Danny Aiello and Bruce Willis and Sarah Bernhardt brought to the film. Um, but I do get a laugh out of it. I, I think it's a very funny film. He, 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 that was a point where Bruce was willing to try anything and people were willing to cast him in anything. In 1990, he did The Bonfire of the Vanities, which was Tom Hanks, Big's first fall from grace and a, a huge critical and commercial flop. Um, but it is a film that has garnered, you know, a lot of following over the years. Um, Last Boy Scout. I loved Last Boy Scout. This was that was sort of Willis really leaning into the the seedy tough guy character that he kind of engendered of himself in real life as well. You got any others that you love? Sorry, I was dropping in some dolphin sound effects because it's about what's Hudson Hawk. <laughs> what else do I love? Okay, so my favorite Bruce Willis film is probably Twelve Monkeys. I just think that is okay, just a yes. stonking great film. And it really yep. speaks to what I liked about Bruce Willis, um, R.I.P., is that... He's not dead. Don't keep saying that. <laughs> he's obviously got like a great amount of screen presence and charisma and quite often lent into that quite heavily. And yep. as evidence, Hudson Hawk is absolutely him just doing that. But at the same time, he was also a little bit interested sort of artistically in stretching what he could do as a movie star. And yep. look, he's a guy that certainly enjoyed being a movie star. He enjoyed the money that came with being movie star. But at the same time, he also liked playing around in the margins and doing things that he, I guess, found satisfying. And 12 Monkeys was never a film that was ever going to break box office records by any means, but certainly spoke to him and spoke to me as a viewer. So that, to me, like I think just maybe speaks to what was great about Bruce Willis, R.I.P., uh, movie star. It's not just Die Hard. It's not just Die Hard with a Vengeance, the only two Die Hard movies that exist. There was also things like 12 Monkeys that. Yeah. Really and you're right. His, his willingness to be a bit cheeky and, and, and play around in that periphery of stardom led to roles in things like Death Becomes Her, where he got that, which was the Robert Zemeckis film yeah, opposite Meryl Streep, that film's no which good. was it's it's nuts and it's and and he was able to sort of go from films like that um into ensemble pieces like pulp fiction um and and the fact that he was able to transfer we are talking about him like he's dead which i wish we wouldn't but he was able to transfer that um stardom across so many different decades of blockbuster movie making he embraced the the action hero in the 80s then he embraced the the indie sort of cool action thing in the 90s by being in pulp fiction and, and a couple of other films like that then into the you know later in his career he was in the sixth sense and um and and those that was the 12 monkeys period as well so you know and then returning to the insane action of things like Armageddon and the Fifth Element, um, it was uh, it's he's just been such an in- integral part of the last sort of three and a half four decades of Hollywood life. Um, yes, some duds along the way. Uh, the whole ten yards isn't going to be anybody's favourite movie in a long time, but um, yeah, I, th- he's left behind a body of work which is uh, which is extraordinary. Yeah, The Fifth Element's actually one of my favourites. I really get a kick out of that film. And it just looks magnificent on screen if you get the chance to see it at the cinema. Yeah, that that's very true. And I know we've spoken about this before, but few films have I absolutely flipped on like The Fifth Element. I hated it when I first saw it. <laughs> yeah. um, and it, it's become this cult item, this huge sort of cult item, and I've revisited it a couple of times, and, and I do thoroughly enjoy it now. I, I kind of get it a bit more than I did at the time. I wasn't ready for... A spiky blonde Bruce Willis in the hands of that nutty director, but um, yep. yeah, he's terrific in it. <laughs> I'm still not sure I'm ready for it. 
<laughs> but look, uh, you mentioned the uh, whole 10 yards, but let's talk about the whole nine yards for a moment. Like the whole yeah. nine yards is really where my relationship with Bruce Willis changed a fair bit. Because the whole nine yards should be a film where he's leaning into that charisma in a really like, you know, meaningful way. But like, it seems like he's taking every effort he can throughout that film to lean as far away from that as possible. And it just turns mm. out to be this really humorless performance in what's actually a fairly charming movie generally. Like, I actually yep. think it sinks that movie. And it's a persona that he really seems to embrace and just carry from that point on. Like, it just seems like he wanted anything but to be that guy that he was in the late 80s, early 90s. And he just became humorless, and it was just difficult to really watch, like, performances. Like, from that point in, I actually struggled to find many Bruce Willis films that I enjoyed. Like, he was in Planet Terror, which, you know, he's kind of fun in that, but, you know, it's not particularly great. <laughs> Like, yeah, in in the last in those last few years, sort of in the last sort of ten years, um, you've got to pick and choose his film very carefully. Support work in things like Moonrise Kingdom was great to watch. He was he was really lovely in that. I thought Looper opposite Joseph Gordon Levitt was Looper, a, a, I think a, a the terrific last good one. Was a terrific film. I'm just looking up and down here. I was in the awful Sin City sequel. That was terrible. So yeah, he started to churn out films. Oh my god! I would never. Forget. He did that Death Wish remake in 2018. With, uh, <laughs> yeah. Which so yeah, he was he was having trouble by this stage. So let's remember him sort of pre 2015 um, when his work was was you know certainly eclectic. Um, there were many different faces to, to Bruce Willis, and we will miss him from our our movie and our TV screens. Did he do much? Did he return to TV much? He was always great when he guested on the the talk shows. He loved. He had a great relationship with Letterman and always had fun on on any of the appearances on the Late Show. That's but, the thing. Um, he was fun. Yeah, and he it, was. He was great fun in that. Yeah, and look, I mean, maybe it's got something to do with his health. Like, I don't really know where the decline is or anything, but it does seem like in that early two thousands, like he just changed with what he wanted to do on screen, and he just didn't mm -hmm. seem fun anymore. And that was, yeah. I think, to the great detriment of his overall filmography. And it's a shame that we managed to make it this far through without mentioning Look Who's Talking or Look Who's Talking to. <laughs> he made a lot of money off the Look Who's Talking films. He was an actor who was able to make a lot of money very quickly, and that's uh, good luck to him. Yeah. If we're going to take away one thing, Bruce Willis, you made a lot of money. R.I.P. <laughs> Simon, we like to wind out the podcast every week with a look at the week ahead. Simon Foster, what's coming up in this quote-unquote week ahead? There's some movies debuting on the streaming platform, Move Fast and Vape Things. That's on stand from April 4. This is a documentary uh, from the New York Times article that traces the e-cigarette maker uh, on its path from fledging startup to Silicon Valley juggernaut and eventually a public health villain. Vaping's not good for you. I don't care what you're saying. If you're out there vaping, stop it. Um, all the old knives, uh, Chris Pine and Tandiwa Newton. What a great cast. This is a crime thriller about two CIA operatives. Um, and former lovers who reunite in an idyllic Carmel by the Sea location to re-examine a mission six years ago in Vienna where a fellow agent might have been compromised. That sounds interesting. Amazon Prime from April 8. And boy, uh, a lot of people are looking forward to the Jimmy Savile a British Horror Story documentary on Netflix from April 6. This exposes the TV star Jimmy Savile and the shocking unseen side of his persona. Um, word is that it's one of the, the, the better of the Netflix documentary series coming down the pipe. Yeah, uh, just one other movie that's probably worth noting as well. On Paramount Plus this week, there's a release of something called the Star Trek Motion Picture Director's Edition. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how that differs from everything else, but I understand within Star Trek circles, it's a pretty big deal. 
Yeah, there's been a whole bunch of sort of uh, director's cuts and different edits over the years. I remember seeing one that didn't have the effects work in, and you could see the the uh, scaffolding above Kirk and <laughs> Spock as they were floating through space. Um, yeah, I'll certainly be having a look at that one. And I do want to mention very quickly, and I forgot to mention it earlier in the show, that I sat down uh, and watched The Bubble, the Judd Apatow film last night mm. on uh, Netflix. Oh, boy. God bless them for getting a film like that together during the pandemic, but boy, it is a struggle. That is a lot of talented people doing some really bad work. Yeah, yeah, I've got a bit of a bad vibe around that one, but I'm in a rush to see it for a reason. Yeah, and it, and and the stars certainly have their moments, but when you put Duchovny and Pedro Pascal and Karen Gillan and Leslie Mann in there, and and you're expecting what Leslie Mann a- in a Judd Apatow movie. Who'd have thought? And Judd Apatow and Leslie Mann's daughter, Iris, who's very charming and very lovely, but just not very funny. Uh, so she fitted into the film just fine. Yeah. Uh, if people want to see a really good David Duchovny performance in a Judd Apatow movie, uh, there's a movie that they made. It's a TV film called, uh, I think it was a TV film at least, called The TV Set. And it's yeah, inspired. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, it's inspired very much around Apatow's experience making Freaks and Geeks. And it's about a TV writer who comes to Hollywood with a very personal story he wants to tell that gets uh, put through the Hollywood machine. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's a terrific yeah. film. It didn't get much of a release out here at all. In fact, I think I brought the DVD in from the US when I when I f- first saw it. But um, yeah, it's a terrific film. Yeah, I think it's the same thing. Uh, directed by Jake Kasdan being Lawrence Kasdan's son and also a director yeah. on the Freaks and Geeks TV series. What are some of the TV series we can look forward to in the week ahead, my friend? So this week is a bit of a strange week in that there's a very big release happening, but we're not getting it here in Australia for quite a number of months. So, yeah. So the big release happening this week is Tokyo Vice. So supposed to drop on HBO Max. It's the, uh, I can't think of his first name, Uh, Man, um, director of Heat and Miami Vice. Michael Mann. Michael Mann. It's Michael Mann's TV series starring Ansel Elgort and filmed around <gasps> nice. Japan. Uh, it's been in production for quite some time and obviously COVID uh, really got a severe sort of, you know, uh, impacted on this one. But it debuts this week on HBO Max, not debuting in Australia for months and months and months, but will come to SBS for some reason later in the year. Why they're not doing it day and day wow. with the US is baffling because all the heat is going to be around this show this week. Like it's one that all the film people will be going nuts for. That does sound strange. Good on SBS for getting it. Why it hasn't, why it wouldn't turn up day and date is just a shock to me because, you know, given that there are so many households that now have access to international broadcasts, it's, um, it seems odd that, it, that SBS wouldn't make that happen. I might have to do a bit of research into that. Yeah. Um, okay. Does sound fascinating, though. Ansel Elgott, and I know that there's a terrific Japanese actor playing opposite him whose name I can't remember. Oh, yeah. It's is it Ken Watanabe? Yeah, that's exactly who it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, cool. All right. Anything else we can expect on the TV series front? <sighs> Nothing that's got me particularly excited. Like, it's going to be a bit of a dull week as far as me trying to come up with content for next week's podcast, but I'll find something. <laughs> but it, this is the thing. Like, this You're... month, there are so many big shows launching. It's just got a dud week coming up ahead because we don't get HBO Max here, in, uh, because we don't get Tokyo Vice here in Australia. Okay, we'll look into that. I do just want to mention very quickly for the parents out there, especially the Brisbane parents, uh, the Oracle Boulevard has free school holiday movies. This is, this is this week's special event screenings. Go to the Eventbrite pages. Just search Oracle Boulevard free school holiday movies um, up there on the Oracle Boulevard in Brisbane. I'm going to keep trying to say Oracle Boulevard as much as I can. Um, April 4th 
through to April 8, you can see films like Tom and Jerry, Paw Patrol, Space Jam, Einbow, and Scooby-Doo, all free of charge. Uh, there'll be refreshments there. That's good school holiday entertainment. Look around your local libraries and waterfronts and um, you know community event places because they're often uh, movie screenings for families over this school holiday period. Exciting. It is exciting. Yeah, you might head down there. Are you far from Oracle Beach where you are or Oracle Boulevard? I don't even know what an Oracle Boulevard is. Well, that's seven times we've said it in the podcast. We should get a mention in the Oracle Boulevard website now. Uh, look, maybe. I um, know where Queens Boulevard is, but I'm not down with the Oracle Boulevard, I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm going to get out, out and about more. Yeah. What happened in history, Dan? Oh, sorry, I'm now just looking up Oracle Boulevard. Oh, this is a Gold Coast thing. Dan, we're doing a podcast. Sorry, you kept, oh, saying, it's a Gold Coast. You kept saying Brisbane. Do not confuse Brisbane with the Gold Coast. I did that. My wife was up at the Screen Producers Conference in on the Gold Coast all this week, and I've been telling everybody she's in Brisbane, and she kept saying, stop calling the Brisbane Gold Coast because it's very, very different. Exactly. The sneakers are an entirely different colour. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this week in history. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I should be scanning to this part. This week in history, as I read the entries that Simon's lovingly placed in here, April 2nd, 1978, Dallas, starring Larry Hagman from I Dream of Genie, and... Uh, what else? Yeah, um, come on. Um, sorry, I'm trying to think of a second Larry Hackman. Dallas. Uh, Primary <laughs> Colors. Okay. And Barbara Bel Geddes premiered on CBS as a five week miniseries. Oh. Before being turned into a the most successful series of that decade. April 3, 1953, the American magazine TV Guide publishes its first issue. Um, who'll ever forget that great Seinfeld episode where that character made the bouquet out of the TV Guide? Very funny stuff. On this day, you can watch five different types of Lucy. There's I Love Lucy, The Lucy Show, Here's Lucy. Okay. Uh, April 5th, 1987, the Fox TV network premiered showing Married with Children and the Tracy Ullman Show, which gave birth to some show called The Simpsons. It did indeed. And on April 8, 1990, Twin Peaks premiered on ABC TV and primetime television was never the same again for a while. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. Simon. April 2nd, 1961, that bald hunk of a man, Christopher Maloney from Law & Order SVU. He was born... Uh, Party Down star Adam Scott was born on April 3rd, 1973. Also doing the rounds on Severance at the moment. Have you gone back and seen the end of that yet? No, nah, I will. No. Nah. Maybe. Yeah, probably eventually. Um, Natasha Leon, who I first recall seeing in uh, But I'm a Cheerleader, a terrific indie film from the 90s, also in Orange is Surely, the New Black and Russian Wait, wait, wait. Ball. Surely American Pie was pre But I'm a Cheerleader, wasn't it? No. I think she went into American Pie out of But I'm a Cheerleader. Really? Okay. I think so. I may be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure. I, I've never seen But I'm a Cheerleader, from... but I have seen American Pie many times. Uh, she was born April 4th, 1979. Uh, Lily James from TV's Pam and Tommy. She played Pam, uh, born <laughs> April 5th, 1989. And on April 7th, 1964, Oscar-winning Australian actor Russell Crowe from A Beautiful Mind. He was born in um, some island across the ditch. April 7th, 1964. Cool. Uh, Simon, this is the end of the podcast. We, we are need to get out of here. We've been done for some time, but for some reason we just <laughs> kept on talking. Folks, this has been Screen Watching. Thank you very much for listening. My name's Dan Barrett. On Twitter, you can find me at the Dan Barrett. You can start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. 
And on Friday, you got the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that very week. Also, for those playing at home, yes, I have been trying to cough for the last 30 seconds. <laughs> I'll, I'll, make, I'll stretch this out. His face is quite red. I'm on the Twitter at Simon R. Foster. Read my words over at ScreenSpace, that's screen-space.net, um, where you can see all the reviews we've talked about today in written form. Visit the ScreenWatching Facebook page at ScreenWatching Podcast, and we've got this terrific ScreenWatching YouTube channel where there's uncut interviews and fresh trailers that we do through the week that you can see at your leisure. Follow Screen Watching via your favourite podcast app. Load it up now. Hit the follow button. Folks, this has been Screen Watching. My name, Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. As people are aware, we've got a hell of a show coming up next week. Yeah, don't go slapping anybody. See you, everyone. Okay, don't go slapping waterfalls. I don't know what that means. See you next week. Bye.